good to see all of you this morning. And for those of you who are visiting us for the first time, we want to welcome you. And for those of you who are joining us online, uh, we want to welcome you as well. Now, um, Jinha and I are actually heading off on a holiday or on leave uh, tomorrow. And so we're very excited to head off for about uh, 10 days. And at the same time, we're very sad to be leaving you for that short period of time. We have different people who are lined up to speak, and so uh, we'll definitely be running church. Uh, we'll still be running church, and so we hope that you can uh, continue to join us. And um, yeah, so today I thought we'd talk about holiness. It's not really a topic that we talk about much. Um, the title for today's sermon is "Saints in the City: uh, Thoughts on Urban Holiness." And uh, just to give you a little bit of a background of how this came to be. It's going to be a little bit, a little bit of a drawn-out intro, but bear with me. Um, I've been going through this Bible reading app. It's called uh, the Read Scripture app. And basically, the Read Scripture app kind of breaks down the Bible into four chapters of reading each day. And so each morning at a certain time, I get a notification on my phone, and it says, uh, time to read Scripture. And so it breaks down those four chapters, and the idea is that after using the app for one year, um, I would have read through the Bible in its entirety. And I really like this app because uh, a number of the videos actually have uh, videos on them. Uh, a number of entries, excuse me, have videos on them. And also, uh, before you start, there's kind of like this breathing exercise, so uh, the, the dot kind of pulsates, it's like inhale exhale and you kind of just calm your mind a little bit and then kind of get ready for get ready to uh, read scripture and to kind of just spend some time with God and so I've quite enjoyed uh, this app now over the past few weeks I've been reading through the book of Leviticus and I don't know how many of you have actually read through the Levitic uh, the book of Leviticus from start to finish but it's a horrible book to read from front to back um and uh, if, if you just if you ever have a chance to flick through the script, uh, flick through the book, then you'll know what I'm talking about. Now, Leviticus introduces God as this holy being. He's pure. He's powerful and good. And he's a being that desires to be near his creation. He's a being that desires to be near his people. Now, the problem is that his people are corrupt, and every time that they try to enter into the presence of God, they end up dying. And so what's being communicated here is that God is pure, and people are just too mortal and flawed and are not able to withstand the presence of God. And so the book of Leviticus outlines a solution so that the people of Israel can stand in the presence of God. They can behold him. They can know him not as a consuming force, but as a good God. So Leviticus outlines instructions for Israel to become holy and pure. And basically, the solutions for Israel's impurity are threefold. The first solution is rituals. And basically, this involves detailed instructions on how to go about animal sacrifices. Um, and a lot of these sacrifices revolve around teachings of forgiveness, and uh, there are other teachings as well, but generally it's talking about forgiveness. Then the second solution is a priesthood, and basically it covers the specific roles of the priest as they represent the people and as they mediate for the people and enter into the very presence of God. The priests have this high set of standards that they are to live by, and this 
uh, and Leviticus outlines those standards. The third solution are purity laws. These laws outlined when a person was clean or unclean, pure or impure. The laws are challenging because not only do they cover moral behavior, but they cover rules about hygiene, diet, and miscellaneous rituals. And when people follow the instructions laid out in the, in the law, they are considered clean and pure and allowed near the temple or the presence of God. So Leviticus is split up, uh, split up into seven sections, and each of those three solutions are um, highlighted twice. And there's kind of like this mirroring effect. So if you find, uh, you'll find that the first and the last chapters have to do with rituals, then the next ones have to do with priesthood, then the purity laws. And right in the middle of the book, um, it kind of, the, the main highlight of the book is the Day of Atonement. And I won't go into it too, uh, so much right now, but um, I'll just highlight the structure of, of this book. So when you'll find, uh, when you read through Leviticus, you'll find all these specific rules. And I'll just highlight one, which is found in Leviticus 10, verses 1 to 3. And there's a story of Aaron's sons. Now, Aaron is the high priest. He is the, uh, he's considered one of the holiest people in all of Israel. And he has these two sons who are going to kind of grow up in, who are supposed to grow up in his footsteps and take over the priesthood when he passes on. But what happens is his two sons offer this strange fire. There were specific regulations around what they were supposed to offer as incense, and they kind of offer something else because they just feel like it, and they end up desecrating the sanctuary. And so what happens is if you look at the middle of that uh, text in verse 2, it says, So fire, I'll read what you've got, Fire blazed forth from the Lord's presence and burned them up, and they died there before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord meant when he said, I will display my holiness through those who come near me. I will display my glory before all the people. And so uh, another way of wording this is God basically says, I will be proved to be holy. And so my question is, why are these rules so strict? Why is it so important to God to be holy and for his people to be holy? I'm going to play a video um, it's a six-minute video, and the Bible Project does a really good job of explaining the purpose of holiness. And so I'm just going to invite you to bear with me for six minutes and to watch this video, and then we'll get back into the message. You've probably heard the word holy before, or at least sang it in a church song once or twice. And for most people, this idea is really just connected to being a morally good person. So... God is holy because he's morally perfect. Yeah, that is part of it. But in the Bible, the idea of holiness is even bigger and more rich. What it's really describing is how God is the creative force behind the whole universe. He's the one and only being with the power to make a world full of such beauty and life. And so all these abilities, they make God utterly unique, which is the meaning of the word holy. So a helpful way to think about God's holiness is by using the sun as a metaphor. The sun is unique, at least within our solar system, and it's really powerful. It's the source of all this beautiful life on our planet. And so you could say that the sun is holy. And you can actually take this metaphor even further in that the whole area around the sun is also holy. Yeah, because the closer you get to the sun, the more intense it gets. Yeah, exactly. So that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous. 
I mean, the sun, if you get too close, will annihilate you. And in the same way, there's this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness, because if you're impure, his presence is dangerous to you. And not because it's bad, but because it's so good. And so the first time we see this paradox of God's holiness, it's in the story of Moses and the burning bush. So God tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. And Moses covers his face in fear, and God says, hey, don't come any closer. It's intense. It's actually that intensity of God's holiness that's explored even more in the stories about Israel's temple, which was the main place where God's holy presence was located. And at the center of the temple was this room called the Most Holy Place. It's the hot spot of God's presence. And whether you're an Israelite living in the land around the temple or a priest working right in the temple, you're in proximity to God's holy presence, which is dangerous. Yeah, this is a problem. So how's it supposed to work? Well, in the Bible, the solution is that you need to become pure. So like being morally pure. Yeah, and that's easy enough to understand. But the Bible spends a lot of time talking about another kind of purity, being ritually pure, which is a state where you separate yourself from anything related to death, like touching things like diseased skin or dead bodies or even certain bodily fluids. All these make you impure. And becoming ritually impure isn't necessarily sinful. What's wrong is waltzing into God's presence when you're in an impure state. And so that's why God gave the Israelites very clear instructions for knowing when they were impure, steps to become pure, so that they could go into the temple again. So that's what the book of Leviticus is about. Right. But it doesn't stop there. This idea keeps developing. So later in the scriptures, we find this really interesting story by a prophet named Isaiah. And he has this crazy vision where he's in the temple and he's right in God's presence. He's totally terrified. Yeah, he knows the rules. He shouldn't even be in there. And he's worried about being destroyed. And then this crazy creature called a seraphim. Yeah, that is a crazy creature. (laughs) Totally. So it flies over with a hot coal. And then it sears Isaiah's lips with the coal and says something really weird. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. So this burning coal somehow makes Isaiah pure. Yeah, it's remarkable because normally if you touch something impure, it transfers its impurity to you. But now here's this new idea where you have this coal, this very holy and pure object, and it touches Isaiah and it transfers its purity to him. Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness. He's transformed by it. I mean, the implications of this are just huge. But there's one more development, this time from another prophet, Ezekiel. And he has this vision where he's standing at the temple and he sees water trickling out from it. And then that water turns into a stream and then it grows into a deep river that starts flowing through the desert, leaving this trail of green trees behind it. And then it flows into the Dead Sea, making everything fresh and alive. So instead of becoming pure first and then going into the temple, here God's holiness comes out from the temple, making things pure and bringing them to life. What does it all mean? So we don't know until we meet this man, Jesus. And he claims that he's fulfilling all of these ancient visions, but in surprising new ways. So Jesus, he went around touching people who are impure, people with skin diseases, a a woman with chronic bleeding or dead people. And when he touches them, their impurity should transfer over to Jesus. But instead, Jesus's purity transfers to them and actually heals their bodies. Jesus is like that holy coal in Isaiah's vision. Right. 
And Jesus claimed that he was the human embodiment of God's own holiness and that he and his followers were now God's temple so that through them, God's holy presence would go out into the world and bring life and healing and hope. And so this is why Jesus described his followers as having streams of living water flowing out of them. So this is our part of the story where we find ourselves now. But where's this all heading? So the last pages of the Bible end with a final vision about God's holiness. And this time it's by a guy named John. And in his vision, we see the whole world made completely new. The entire earth has become God's temple. And Ezekiel's river is there, flowing out of God's presence, immersing all of creation, removing all impurity, and bringing everything back to life. We believe the Bible is one complete narrative, so we're making these videos to trace a theme That's good, thanks, that goes James. from the beginning. <clears throat> so, as you see from this video, God's desire is to be with his people. And without holiness, communion and connection with God is not possible. And therefore, it's necessary for people to be holy. There's a transition that's highlighted in the video God makes them holy as opposed to Israel making themselves holy. And this transition was supposed to get them to think about the global community. You see, holiness wasn't supposed to become a barrier separating them from the world. Holiness, uh, holiness was supposed to be this force that would break down the barriers so that the world could be saved. The Bible also talks about different motivations for holiness, what should motivate us to be holy? What should motivate us to want to connect with God, to connect with one another, to connect with the community? If you turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to read verses 9 to 16. For those of you who have the World Changer Bibles, this is going to be page 978. It's 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 9 to 16. And we're going to look at page 978. So I'm going to narrate the first half of this. When you look through verses 9 to 11, you're going to see that Peter uh, talks about the value of the message and the experience of salvation. He talks about how the prophets of old wanted so badly to understand to and to experience the gospel or to experience salvation. When would the Messiah come? How would the events of the first coming unfold? And Peter says, to them... The information and the experience is not given. But if you look at verses 12, it continues on. He says, um, but to us, we know what happened. Uh, excuse me. They were told that their messages were not for themselves, but for you. And now this good news has been announced to you by those who preached in the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. It is all it is also wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching these things happen. So he says, even though the message wasn't for the prophets, it is for you. And even the angels of heaven look down and they eagerly wonder, what is humanity going to do with the most valuable gift that heaven has to bestow? So verses 13 to 16, and here's the therefore. And I think in, in your Bibles it says, so... 
but it says, so prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. But now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. What I want to highlight here is that holiness is a response to salvation. Holiness is a response to salvation. There's a difference between being holy because you want to be accepted and being holy because you are accepted. If you ever feel insecure, try to redirect your attention from your failure to God's success. From the things that you are not able to do to the things that God has done. Peter says, Be holy because salvation is yours. In other words, holiness is not supposed to be this burden where you think, oh man, I'm just not good enough. That's not the purpose of holiness. Holiness is something you give because you are blessed. Forgiveness is supposed to motivate holiness. Peter mentions a second motivator here. If you look at verse 13, he says, put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So live as obedient children and be holy because God is holy. So practicing holiness acknowledges a future. It acknowledges the second coming. See, we're called to connect how we live our lives in the present with our belief in an eternal future. So practicing holiness is an act of faith that the second coming is going to take place. See, the Bible is an apocalyptic book through and through. If you look at the life and teachings of Jesus, they don't make sense if there isn't a second coming. Think about the most famous prayer in all of the Bible. It's the Lord's Prayer. And the last phrase ends with, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And if the second coming doesn't take place, that prayer just doesn't make sense. There's an Adventist theologian by the name of Ante Jaronsik, and he writes, or he makes an observation in regards to the impact of the second coming on the pioneers of Adventism. He writes, the Adventist pioneers' apocalyptic focus on the imminent return of Christ, the conviction that eternity was right at the door, led them to craft a lifestyle that would reflect the gravity of the times in which they were living. As they saw it, you could not profess such a cosmic announcement and continue to stroll around as if nothing had happened. Here's another non-Adventist theologian who writes, From first to last, and not merely in the epilogue, Christianity is eschatology, um, which is a study of the end times. Christianity is eschatology, is hope looking forward and forward moving, and therefore also revolutionizing and transfor- uh, transforming the present. The eschatological is not one element of Christianity, but it is the medium of Christian faith. As such, the key in which everything is set, the glow that uh, suffuses everything here is the, uh, in the dawn of an expected new day. So in summary, we've talked about the purpose of holiness, how holiness is the vehicle which... Uh, connection and communion with God 
uh, and others takes place. We talked about how the salvation of Christ, or excuse me, how the salvation in Christ motivates holiness as does the implications of the second coming. But the final question that I want to address is, what does it actually mean to be holy? What does it mean? See, holiness is not just about asking the question, what would Jesus do? It's about asking the question, what and how does Jesus see? What does he care about? C.S. Lewis, in the book uh, Chronicles of Narnia, writes, What you see and what you hear depends a great deal on where you are standing and what sort of person you are. I'm going to break this down into four bits. C.S. Lewis basically says, Your ability to see is dependent on your ability to observe, then to interpret, then to understand and judge or value. And what happens next is action. Imagination and exploration comes at the last. So just to repeat, the ability to see is dependent on the ability to observe, interpret, judge, and then act. There's a story in the New Testament. It's found in Mark chapter 14, verses 3 to 6, if you can turn with me there. Mark chapter 14. And for those of you who have the World Changer Bibles, it will be page 817. Oh, 816. Mark chapter 14, verses 3 to 6. And this is a story of Mary pouring fragrance over the feet of Jesus. And she gives this act of worship to Jesus. And what's interesting is how the disciples respond to this act and then how Jesus responds to this act. So Mark chapter 14, verses 3 to 6. The story goes, Meanwhile, Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy. While he was eating, a woman came in with a beautiful alabaster box of expensive perfume made from essence of nard. She broke open the jar and poured the perfume over his head. Some of those at the table were indignant. Why waste such expensive perfume, they asked. It could have been sold for a year's wages and the money given to the poor. So they scolded her harshly. But Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why criticize her for doing such a good thing to me? And reading on to verse 7, You always have the poor among you, and you can help them whenever you want, but you will not always have me. See, Jesus here, he's not acting in opposition to his disciples. He just simply sees things differently. He observed when others were oblivious. He interpreted and understood what Mary was doing. He judged her act and valued it as an act of worship, not as an act of waste. And then he responds appropriately and creatively by accepting her, then tactfully correcting the disciples. Holiness begins with observation. The ethicist Stanley Hauros says, Ethics is not, first of all, concerned with thou shalt and thou shalt not. Its first task its first task is to help us rightly envision the world. See, we tend to make a list of what makes someone holy. And uh, whether you're in the Adventist church or different churches, we all kind of have our set rules of what it means to be a good and holy Christian. Um, 
and, and this is quite tricky because people have different opinions on different matters, and I'll list a few things. Uh, patriotism, finance, sexual purity, alcohol, jewelry, entertainment. And if you talk to 100 different people, they're going to tell you 100 different things on what is acceptable on, and what is not acceptable. So then how do you spe- specifically pick out certain things and say, th- if you do this, you are holy. If you don't do this, you are not holy. I find there's one thing that's quite helpful in this space. I think it's important to acknowledge when our holiness is inconsistent or imbalanced. In other words, it's important to acknowledge when we may highlight one thing as holy. um, I give offerings, therefore I am holy. Or I go to church and therefore I'm holy. And ignore other things like I'm an angry, violent person. Right? And so there's that inconsistency. And so it's very difficult to pinpoint one area of life and say, ah, now I've, ar- now I've arrived at holiness. Now, imbalance isn't necessarily an intentional decision. Personal interests, environment, cultural trends, they don't ask for our permi- permission. They just simply influence us. But it's important to acknowledge those moments when we do realize that imbalance. I don't think it's okay to simply say, This is not my thing. Complacency may not seem to affect our relationship with God, but it certainly affects others and their relationship with God. And I think deep down it does affect our own personal relationship. I think it's important to ask a few questions. Why do I find this one area unimportant? Who or what has influenced me in this regard? What emotions drive my resistance? What unpleasant experiences or personal slights lie at the bottom of my reservations? There's this call in scripture for us to be good, and in turn, we find truth and holiness. There's one more passage that I'd like you to turn to. It's 2 Peter, going back to 2 Peter at the end of the Bible, chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 5 to 9. 2 Peter, chapter 1, verses 5 to 9. And this is page 982. Here's how the text reads. In view of all this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence and moral excellence with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with patient endurance and patient endurance with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love for everyone. The more you grow like this, the more productive and useful you'll be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But those who fail to develop in this way are short-sighted or blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their old sins. So notice it talks about hindrances to be able to observe and see. And what clears that blindness is to then be good, to focus on character as opposed to isolating specific acts of holiness. And so Peter calls us to then to be good, then we will see God and find holiness. If you go on YouTube, um, I'll invite you to watch two videos, not right now, but if you have free time later on and uh, and you're reminded of it. um, I invite you to find a music video by Stevie Wonder. It's called Sir Duke. 
and it's one of his most iconic uh, songs. In 1977, it was a number one hit, and uh, basically he pays tribute to um, the Duke Ellington, a, a famous jazz artist. And so he writes this song. The second video that I invite you to watch is a, a video entitled Jacob Collier Deconstructs a Stevie Wonder Classic. And in this video, you see one composer deconstructing the music of another uh, 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 sorry, one composer deconstructing the music of another composer. And what happens is the level of observation and understanding is just a cut above anything that I've ever seen. But they present it in such an interesting way. So <clears throat> what you find in the video is that it transforms the observing comp uh, as the observing composer uh, breaks down and observes uh, Stevie Wonder's song. It transforms his own understanding of that uh, of music in general. So he observes what a master composer does and says, "I can use that in my own. I can use that in my own in, in my own music." And he says, "This song transformed the way that I write music." His observing changed him. And so what happens is he sees and then he makes his own beautiful music. See, what you are determines what you see and what you don't see. It determines your potential range of actions, emotional responses, and cares. See, our perception is connected to our standing and our being and who we are. So as you draw near to a holy God, may you get to see the world through his eyes. May you observe him and may what he does transform you in turn. May God bless you as you live as holy people.